Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the New Books Network podcast in Asian American Studies. I'm your host, Donna Doan Anderson, and joining me in conversation is the distinguished historian, Dr. Hu Ping Ling. I have the pleasure of discussing her latest two books, Chinese Americans in the Heartland and Asian American History, which were both published by Rutgers University Press in 2022 and 2023, respectively. We'll begin our discussion with Asian American History, a comprehensive survey text that places Asian immigration to America in international and domestic contexts. In the text, Ling uses the histories of ethnic groups spanning from East, Southeast, South, and West Asia to explore the significant elements that define Asian America, such as imperialism, global capitalist expansion, transnationalism, labor, immigration, exclusion, family, community, and gender roles. The second part of our conversation will discuss Chinese Americans in the Heartland, which is a book especially dear to me as a historian of the Asian American Midwest. In this work, Ling expands upon the research and interventions of her earlier books, Chinese St. Louis and Chinese Chicago. In Chinese Americans in the Heartland, Ling draws upon rich evidence from various government records, personal stories, interviews, and media reports to shed light on the commonalities and uniqueness of the region, as compared to the Asian American communities on the coast and in Hawaii. An internationally renowned historian and award-winning writer, Huping Ling is a professor of history, the founder of the Asian and Asian American Studies program, and past department chair at Truman State University. She is a visiting fellow of the Hoover Institution at Stanford University and is also affiliated with many programs studying overseas Chinese, including serving as the Yangtze Scholar Chair Professor of the Chinese Ministry of Education. She is the founding and inaugural book series editor for Asian American Studies Today with Rutgers University Press and former editor-in-chief of the Journal of Asian American Studies from 2008 to 2012. She has authored or edited 34 books and published over 200 articles in Asian American Studies. That said, let's get started with our conversation. Hello, Huping. How are you doing today? Great. Wow. Thank you so much for joining us in conversation today. So I'll just go ahead and get started with my first question. Um, Would you be able to share with the listeners what compelled or inspired you to write the two books? And how do these two texts fit into the trajectory of your established career? Uh, All right. Yes, it's a great and very (laughs) comprehensive question. Uh, And I feel um, writing Asian American history, the textbook, Okay, let me start from here, uh, then I'll move on to the Chinese-American sure. in Heartland. Okay, if you don't mind, since we're going to cover Asian-American history first, then move on to Chinese-American in Heartland. Okay, so writing uh, uh, the textbook is a very daunting task, and it was an evolving process for me. Um, I, I entered into the field of uh, American history during my college years in China in the early 1980s. So it was a long pass. And that time uh, when the Sino-US relationship was just normalized and the Chinese government began to dispatch students and the scholars to the US for f- further education and the training. And that time I was very fascinated with the US history and was preparing my entrance exam for graduate program in American studies at Wuhan University uh, under the pioneering uh, American studies scholar in China, Professor Liu Xuyi. However, 
my alma mater, which is Shenqi University, at the time wanted me to stay there as an assistant professor teaching the contemporary world history with a focus on American history. So I can see that was the beginning of my trajectory in American history research and writing. Uh, uh, when I was at college in China, I had translated American academic books from English into Chinese and uh, published articles on FDR, uh, uh, that means uh, Roosevelt, uh, in top of academic journals in China. Uh, but my desire of writing my own book of American history began slowly and steadily grew. Uh, when it was selected by the Chinese Ministry of Education in 1985 as a Chinese government-sponsored scholar to study at the Georgetown University in D.C., and uh, I began to become more and more interested in Asian American study. I chose it as my major and the research focus, and eventually it became my dissertation, my doctoral dissertation on Chinese American women. And uh, that finally turned into my first book uh, published in the United States. The title was Surviving on the Gold Mountain, a history, history of Chinese American women and their lives in 1998. So it was, at the time, it was the first comprehensive and complete history of Chinese American women. And but I believe it is still uh, now widely cited uh, and uh, it's a Chinese version has been regarded as a classic textbook and the reference in uh, Asian American studies, uh, in American studies in China. So when I uh, started my full-time teaching at the Truman State University, where I founded their first and the only Asian American studies minor degree in Missouri, uh, I began to feel the need of a comprehensive and a complete Asian American history. Uh, so I began consciously selecting and organizing a variety of materials to prepare for such a textbook. Uh, and this process took me over 30 years. And meanwhile, I had been promoted from assistant professor to full professor and served as the director of the Asian American Studies minor, the Truman, and the director in chief for the Journal of Asian American Studies, which you are working now uh, from 2008 to 2012, and the editor of the book series Asian American Studies today at the Rutgers University Press since 2012. And uh, I have a uh, about 34 books ever since then, and over 200 articles in Asian American studies. So during my over three decades long teaching, research, and writing, this preparation of a comprehensive book on Asian American history has served me so well that I have accumulated, uh, some people call it encyclopedia knowledge, uh, which has broadened and deepened my understanding and enriched and enlivened uh, my narration of my writing in more specific subjects such as Asian American women, gender, family, marriage, immigration, and migration, settlement patterns and uh, community structures, ethnic network, assimilation and diversity, racial conflict and uh, collaboration, political participation and so on and so forth. Wow, that's great. Thank you so much for sharing that. And I mean, what an impressive kind of scholarly trajectory. 
Yeah. So if we could continue talking about, um, you know, maybe we can save the conversation about Chinese Americans on the heartland when we transition into that part of our conversation. But to keep going about Asian American history, which was published earlier this year, um, you had mentioned in that comment you just uh, gave us that it offers a really comprehensive overview of Asian American history, and that also you see this as a resource for high school and college students. So I was hoping that in our conversation, you could offer some reflections about uh, putting this text together. For example, what were some of the challenges in writing such an extensive history? And what did you draw on to make sure that certain perspectives and ideas were included? Yeah, this is a great question again. Uh, in writing this book, I have faced uh, multifaceted challenges, I would say. But the first and foremost, I believe, uh, is a structural organization. Uh, as we all know that uh, Asian American is a term emerged during the civil rights movement in the 1960s that shared the experiences with African-Americans and Hispanic-American activism and borrowed this pan-ethnic term of Asian-American from the uh, aforementioned two ethnic groups. And it encompasses 26 or more ethnic groups from East Asian, North Asian, South Asian, Southeast Asian, West Asian, and uh, various Pacific Islanders. With such a diverse cultural, geographic, uh, linguistic, religious, and social economic backgrounds. So this term was uh, adopted at that time for practical and strategic purposes, practically uh, because the U.S. census uh, in the 1960s began to lump various Asian ethnic groups into a category of Asian American and the Pacific Islander or AAPI, which legitimized the term of AAPI. So strategically seeing the collective power and influence of Asian American, I'm sorry, African Americans and Hispanic Americans, who are also from diverse backgrounds in African continent and the South America and the Caribbean regions, and gained uh, visible successes in their struggle for quality and for equality and civil rights. Uh, so Asian American activists and scholars also felt the necessity for the use of this pan-ethnic term, Asian American. But how to depict, <clears throat> depict such a um, diverse and rich ethnic group having compelling collective narration of AAPI as a whole as well as individual depiction of each national groups separately. It seems a daunting challenge, not only to me, but to every writer uh, who engaged in this task of writing a comprehensive history of Asian Americans. Uh, <clears throat> so I studied various approaches of other writers especially the pioneering and highly respected textbooks such as uh, Roger Daniels' Asian American, okay, which was published in 1988, Ronald Takaki's Strangers from a Different Shore, published in 1989, and Su Chen Chen's Asian Americans, published in 1991. So they are used <clears throat> according to their strengths and their sources. They have different approach, for example, 
uh, Roger Daniels adopted a chronological structure to encompass uh, Chinese and Japanese American experience. And he used the metic uh, very meticulous historical evidence and the census data. Uh, 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 Ron Takaki used a, a combination of ethnic group and topics as uh, organizational thread. He had very rich and engaging literary sources in the flowering narration. While well, Sutton Chen's book was a chronological and a topical approach uh, with uh, rich and meticulous sources and the concise and the sharp analysis. So I uh, admired the, all of them. And uh, finally, I decided to uh, landed on the approach of a chronological and a topical approach, okay? Uh, but with was a more accessible narration and the user-friendly features, as you said, okay? Um, I aspired to use it as a textbook for undergraduate studies, uh, undergraduate students as well as high school students. So I used uh, the special features such as chapter outlines, significant events, historical perspective, important uh, terminologies, discussion, thinking questions, virtual aids, and the further readings in each chapter to make it more appropriate for students. Asian American history lovers, community activists, as well as uh, policy making agencies. Uh, so this is a uh, one uh, difficulty part that I took a long time to finally decide. Secondly, uh, how do I draw on to make sure that certain perspectives and ideas were included? The choices I made for this selection uh, and inclusion were also involving an accumulation of my decades long teaching, research, and writing. Um, so that process helped me to have a good grasp of not only the uh, factual materials, but also the evolving and updated scholarly developments. The writing of this book has taken decades with numerous drafts and uh, updates throughout the years. So my understanding of the field and its evolution is ever-changing and continuously growing, which enabled me to have a higher level of comfort to make the uh, right and appropriate choices. Wow. I mean, that was such a wonderful overview. And I think I loved that you positioned Asian American history, your text, into this broader chronology of other comprehensive histories that we've seen in, in, or Asian American histories that we've seen over the past few decades. And I guess on that note, um, I was hoping that you could elaborate a little bit more about those choices and then your comfort level um, in writing this text. And, you know, oftentimes as I'm thinking about this as a historian myself, um, these comprehensive texts offer just as much a reflection on the historical events that you're writing about as they do about our contemporary present. And so I'm thinking about, as you mentioned, the choices that, say, Ron Takaki made with Strangers from a Different Shore or Chan's Asian Americans, or even the more recent ones that you're joining, like Erica Lee's The Making of Asian America and Catherine Choi's Asian American Histories of the United States, and how all these kind of speak to a particular moment in time that they're written in. 
um, and or the scholarly interventions, as you mentioned, that they're trained in. So what is the particular issue, kind of moment or scholarly intervention that you're writing towards when you were uh, putting this version of Asian American history together? Again, it's a good question. Uh, my book, Asian American History, as I said earlier, uh, is a long time working process. Uh, however, I have consciously uh, maintained a close connection with a significant historical as well as current issues, moment or scholarly intervention. Uh, all of the significant historical issues and urgent present concerns are, ref uh, are reflected in the book. Uh, for example, the historical issues such as debate between exclusion and assimilation, uh, diversity and uh, uniformity, the Asian studies movement, and its recent challenges, transnationalism, systematic racial discrimination, um, and those issues, and the more uh, current concerns and uh, facts, such as uh, the COVID-19 and the uh, consequent Asian hate against Asian Americans, uh, the conflict and the confrontation between the two superpowers of the US and China and their impact to Asian American immigrant policy and Asian American community, etc. Okay. Um, so what is uh, more unique and important is that I felt in, in my book, I incorporated uh, various new perspectives that were, nor, uh, were not included in the aforementioned books. Um, <clears throat> first is the incorporation of the underrepresented Asian American groups who are newer and smaller in population, but by no means are less important. Okay, for example, like uh, Hmong and Laos, uh, Thai, you know, Asian, those are Asian American groups. Okay. Uh, the second is the uh, inclusion of a third coast approach that encompasses all states. Okay, as many as thirty-five states, as some scholars claims, between the east and the west coasts, and they are much more uh, numerous in population and larger in geographic area. So uh, they deserve more attention for scholars and the general public. I think this is something a historian and a educator should strive to do. So recentering the focus of Asian American studies in the traditional writing is a unique feature of the book. Wow, thank you. I love ending on this note of the Third Coast approach. Um, and I think that's a wonderful transition into speaking more specifically about Chinese Americans in the Heartland, which is the other book that you've published in the past year. So of course, as you mentioned in our first question, you have an incredibly um, prominent publishing career and Chinese Americans in the Heartland, at least for me as a scholar of Asian American Midwest as well, was such a great add to the already wonderful scholarship that you've worked on in your past uh, books, such as like Chinese uh, Chicago or Chinese St. Louis. And so to think about the third coast approach, to think about Chinese Americans in the heartland, um, you know, this is such an impressive representation of your decades long research, as is 
Asian American history, the other book that we just finished discussing. Um, so I want us to kind of think about this book, maybe go back to our first question about what inspired you to write a comprehensive book about Chinese Americans in the heartland, but then also specifically uh, maybe attending to the question about the interior, right? This third coast that you mentioned. So specifically, um, you kind of attend to this in the first part of Chinese Americans in the Heartland, the first section, which is titled Transnational Migration and Work. Could you share with us what brings Chinese migrants into the U.S. interior and what are early Chinese American communities um, looking for by moving into the heartland when established enclaves already existed on the coast? All right. Uh, related to what you have asked earlier, okay, what inspired me to write this. So during my... <clears throat> Studying and writing, I have noticed that the uh, mid mid area of the country, not only Asian American history, actually, actually generally American history, has been uh, uh, under representation. Okay, we we are observed that under representation of uh, uh, American population in the heartland or mid section of the country. And uh, fortunately, I landed the job at Truman State University, which gave me uh, close access to the Midwest, especially the two major metropolises in in this area. One is Chicago, another is St. Louis. So since the 1990s, I began to, well, the early research started in the late 80s, but in, in the beginning of the 1990s, I began to plunge it into the local community to collect the data, doing interviews and uh, visit uh, various sites. Uh, so back to your question, uh, uh, what brought the Asian Americans to this area? Um, there are a couple, a couple of uh, forces that pushed and pulled the Chinese migrants into the heartland. Okay, let me use this old concept of a push and pull. The pushing came from the large, the large-scale anti-Chinese movement on the West Coast in the 1870s and onward, where Chinese were largely and economically restricted of opportunities, physically uh, assaulted or murdered by white mobs, while some returned to China under these circumstances. Most uh, maintained in the U.S. and began re-migration to other areas of the country, such as South, East, and the Midwest. But the major pulling force was the need of labor in the American interior. Uh, in the post-Bellum time, uh, industrialization and urbanization took place in the South and the Midwest, so which attracted migrants from rural America, as well as immigrants from all of the world. When the Chinese were pushed out of the Golden State, they were lured into the um, wide Midwest for more and or better opportunities. Uh, in St. Louis, for instance, in the 1860s and 1870s, hundreds of Chinese were recruited by the coal mining and the brick-making companies. When there was a sizable Chinese labor, there would be need for services of uh, Chinese groceries and the foods and so on and so forth. So slowly but steadily, the Chinese settlements emerged. 
in the cities and the towns of the Midwest. Uh, because of the need of the labor in the region, the local receptance to the Chinese was also more positive and friendly. For instance, one of the Chinese pioneers in Chicago, Moi Zhongzhou, uh, who was one of the so-called famous Three Moi brothers, he was elderly. And he said when he was interviewed by the local news media, uh, people here don't think we are heathens. Uh, we also believe God and uh, they are more friendly to us. So this interview was uh, frequently quoted in various scholarly writings. And in the recent decades, uh, uh, the, the attraction to the heartland, in addition to work opportunity, a cheaper cost of living, okay, especially cheaper real estate, and the safer and the more uh, relaxed living in environments. It's really enlightening to think about also, you know, to think about how the regional differences of the interior kind of offer this space in which Chinese American, early Chinese American communities can thrive, um, you know, through their labor or kind of through their community's involvement. And so this transitions a little bit into the second part of the book. Um, and in the second part of the book, which you've titled Marriage, Family, and Community Organizations, you detail a little bit more about not just what's bringing him, what's bringing Chinese Americans into the interior, the push and pull factors, but also what their communities look like and how they sustained themselves through these years. And so in this section, I was particularly compelled by your argument against the common myths that are associated with Chinese American ethnic enclaves or social practices um, you know, that are responding to restrictive American immigration policies. So would you be able to uh, elaborate to our listeners some examples of how this works and what that looks like, um, particularly in relation to these social relationships that are maintained in these communities? Okay, certainly. Uh, in my research and the investigation, I have found a number of uh, characteristic uh, regarding the marriage patterns, family structures, and the roles of Chinese immigrant women have played in their families as a result of the immigration experience, uh, especially the uh, restrictive American immigration policies. Uh, first, uh, I'm going to elaborate on the diverse marriage patterns. Uh, there are several uh, or I can see there are three marriage patterns emerged among American, uh, among the Chinese uh, immigrant families. The first one is a transnational split marriage in which uh, a man had both a Taishanese widow. Okay, Taishanese is a place, Taishan is a county uh, in uh, Guang, uh, Guangdong province, which is a, a major uh, origin, uh, uh, origin, original site of the Chinese early Chinese immigrants. Okay, so Taishanese widow who remained in China and American concubine uh, who accompanied uh, the Chinese migrant to America. Uh, the second pattern is a traditional Chinese marriage. The third one, uh, I call it American urban marriage uh, that included uh, 
love union and interracial marriage and the widow remarriage. So I'd like to first elaborate on the transnational split marriage, Taishanese widow and American concubine. Um, as we know, concubinage was uh, practiced in China, but it was not only practiced in China, in traditional China, uh, but uh, uh, well, it was also a cultural product of a patriarchal society in some other cultures. In origin of uh, concubinage in China, okay, um, it, it is obscure, but it is certainly uh, related to the patriarchal nature of the society, in which only a male heir could secure a family's name to be passed down, keep his fortune intact, and have his social and economic status in the community unchallenged. Uh, so a Chinese man, therefore, uh, legitimately uh, are expected to have, if they don't, their first wife don't have a male heir, so they could have a concubine or concubines. So the, this institution of concubinage was, was uh, strengthened in history and developed it during the Song Dynasty, okay, which is from 900 to 1279 uh, AD, uh, when urban development and economic prosperity uh, reduced the significance of women's participation in economic activities and enabled wealthy Chinese uh, gentry landowners and the merchants to enjoy a more leisurely lifestyle. Uh, so together with other valuable possessions, concubines signify a man's social status and economic power. Many wealthy Chinese men therefore acquired concubines not only to satisfy their sexual appetite, but also to display their fortune and power. Uh, so um, although concubinage has been practiced in China historically, the plagueness conditions among Chinese immigrants in U.S. were more likely a ramification of immigration rather than Chinese cultural habits. Not only the well-to-do Chinese merchants, but even some Chinese laborers had concubines in America. Before the repeal of the Chinese exclusion laws in 1943, most Chinese immigrant men had left their families in China due to financial constraints, American immigration restrictions, and the Chinese patriarch, uh, which uh, dedicated that woman would stay in China uh, to take care of children and the parents-in-law and to secure remittance from men abroad. A few fortunate men were eventually able to arrange to have their families come to America. Many others managed to return to their native villages in China to see their families periodically. However, uh, the passage of the Scott Act in 1888, which barred the re-entry of Chinese laborers, uh, even if they had left the country only temporarily. However, 
uh, made this latter practice impossible. Unable to bring their wives to America or go to America uh, or go to China uh, to see them, some successful Chinese laborers, such as farmers, employed laborers, servants, workers, and even gamblers, purchased women from brothels or married those who successfully escaped the servitude. Furthermore, uh, this pra uh, uh, polygamy practice. Uh, it also was practiced among the Chinese immigrant males during the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Uh, but this practice took a different form from that in China. Most men had the first wives in China and remarried or lived with women on the common law marriage in America without divorcing their first wives. So they generally did not live with multiple women in the same household at the same time, as the term polygony, uh, polygonous marriage suggests. Uh, so in another word, uh, these marriages were more bigamous than polygonous. Moreover, uh, the bigamous practice among Chinese immigrants in America were more for practical reasons. Okay, that is the physical sustenance of the men and the survival of Chinese immigrant communities then for uh, psychological reasons, such as display of one's wealth through possession of concubines, okay, which was the case of many wealthy men in China. Um, and in this section, I also argued that uh, in the first two marriage types, uh, we also see a, a large family size and the large age difference between the married couples. Uh, this age gap between uh, marital partners can be attributed to patriarchal Chinese culture, uh, which dedicates that the marriage was often a social and economic engagement between the families of the bride and the group, uh, rather than a romantic union between two individuals. Uh, however, uh, the age gap between husband and wife was more noticeable among Chinese immigrants than among those who remained in China. Uh, so obviously, immigration to America contributed to this age gap. Uh, American immigration policies before 1943 effectively reinforced the sexual imbalance among the Chinese immigrants by restricting uh, the entry of Chinese women. Okay, for example, uh, the Page Law of 1875 uh, forbade the entry of Chinese, Japanese, and Mongolian contract laborers and uh, prohibited the entry of women for the purpose of prostitution. Um, so those are the one of the major reasons okay, for this large age gap. The second reason for this age gap was the uh, uh, enforcement of anti-miscegenation laws in many states, uh, which prevented Chinese men from marrying women outside their own ethnic groups. Uh, anti-miscegenation laws, as we know that, okay, was uh, uh, in practice in 30-some states, okay, which prohibited uh, non-whites. Okay. Uh, especially the Mongol, 
African Americans and uh, so-called the Mongoloids, okay, mainly Chinese, Japanese, and other Asians uh, from marrying women outside of their ethnic group. Okay, so the Chinese men prohibited from marrying women of other racial groups. They could only look for mates from a very limited supply, most likely American-born Chinese girls, who in terms of age often could have been their daughters. Okay, that's the second reason. Third, uh, the noticeable age difference between Chinese husband and wives uh, was also due to the financial disability of Chinese men. So that's uh, another aspect in this uh, section. And uh, I also mentioned in this section, life in America also elevated the position of most uh, Chinese women to that of female family heads, co-providers, and the joint decision makers in their families. And that is a significant contribution, absolutely, to think about the role of Chinese women in these communities and how, despite you know what we would consider these extremely restrictive immigration policies, this is actually a tool of negotiation um, in some ways for them to assume certain roles that would not necessarily be attainable in other places. So I want to think also about the notion of this community and particularly all the different elements that are part of this, um, which brings me to the concept of the cultural community, uh, which you define as a new community structure based on preserving ethnic identity and establishing solidarities for future well-being. And so for those um, listeners who are familiar with your book, Chinese St. Louis, which came out in 2004, this is a kind of revisitation to the notion of the cultural community that you introduced then. So I was hoping if you could maybe discuss the third part of Chinese Americans in the Heartland, which you titled New Community Structures, and the kind of revisitation of the cultural community, which you first introduced in Chinese St. Louis. How has that idea developed or changed or um, what is this framework offering to us as Asian American studies scholars? Mm-hmm. Um, okay, this um, I've discussed uh, in in my book, uh, Chinese American in the Heartland, in Chapter 8, um, why it emerged in St. Louis, uh, because uh, there are a couple of reasons. Okay? Uh, the urban renewal efforts in St. Louis uh, repeatedly halted the attempts by the Chinese in St. Louis to rebuild the physical Chinatown. And the newly arrived Chinese professionals had a limited incentive to recreate Chinatown uh, because they largely depend on the mainstream society. And uh, uh, professionally, uh, they uh, acculturated and assimilated well into the larger society so that they had less need to uh, ethnic community, uh, physical community. And at the same time, the dispersion of the Chinese restaurant business also made it difficult and impractical to form a new Chinatown. Because uh, since the 1950s, and especially after the 1970s, the Chinese restaurants usually uh, um, located in the strip malls, uh, urban suburban communities, not really concentrated in the uh, certain geographical areas. 
so this uh, uh, dispersion and the, the question to identify such a community, because a lot of people, a lot of um, locals even, okay, when the locals questioned where where was the Chinese community before? So what is the Chinese community now? Do we really have a Chinatown? So it is true. It's harder to identify this physical Chinatown. However, if you look more closely, we can see there's a, uh, 40 Chinese community organizations uh, often gathered around during the weekend. And there are many Chinese uh gathered in Chinese community, uh, uh, Chinese churches, and the Chinese language schools during the special Chinese holiday celebrations, especially during this, uh, in the mid-May, they have a two-day so-called cultural, Chinese cultural days. So you can suddenly see the thousands of Chinese appeared in uh, Missouri Botanic Garden okay, to displace all kinds of the Chinese cultural aspects, like, you know, cooking display or martial arts, uh, um, Chinese calligraphies, okay, those activities. So people began to wonder, okay, okay, what is this kind of community? So then I uh, thought about it a long time or so, okay, a decade about, and I discussed this idea with community uh, activists, and I presented numerous papers uh, in conferences, okay, shared with my colleagues, Finally, I, I come to this concept of a cultural community. So this community, unlike uh, the traditional Chinese community, Chinatown, or the more new form of Chinese community, community such as a suburban community in uh, Monterey Park City, or a global city as defined by some scholars in New York City. So this uh, special cultural community more focus on social spatial aspect rather than this physical physical space but cultural and the social space okay so those uh, uh, wide array of community organizations ethnic language schools ethnic religious institutions cultural agencies and the cultural celebrations and the gatherings they constitute a cultural community so those organizations or activities serve as the infrastructure of the cultural community. Okay. Um, so um, to answering your question, you know, how this cultural community evolved. Okay. Since the publication of uh, Chinese St. Louis in 2004, I didn't stop at there. Okay. I have continuously uh, watched, okay, observed the community and going there constantly, regularly to uh, visit sites and exchange ideas and continue to do the interviews with locals. And currently I'm writing, uh, actually writing a follow-up volume of Chinese or Asian American communities in St. Louis. Uh, so in this new book or book plus uh, manuscript, uh, I continued my earlier formulation or this framework of cultural community. Okay, and, and I found this structure continues serving as a meaningful, meaningful and a appropriate community structure. 
for St. Louis, uh, for Chicago, and for many Asian American communities, where uh, the sizable population and the physical community structure are absent. But the cultural or spatial community infrastructure uh, of churches, ethnic language schools, uh, community organizations, and the cultural activities prove to be critical. Okay. I have seen many scholars uh, use the a concept of cultural com community uh, to identify their community. For example, uh, some suburban areas in uh, Southern California, in LA areas, and in other regions of the country. And many uh, scholars, even in other countries, also begin to use this concept more and more often. And also this, uh, uh, with the rapid development development of internet and the social media in the recent decades, okay? And, and also found a variation of a cultural community. We can call it a cultural, uh, we can call it a virtual or cyber community. Okay? Also emerged as a very useful interpretation of the new Asian American community structure. Uh, so this cultural community concept, I believe, okay? Uh, it, it provided a very useful uh, alternative for our understanding of uh, new Asian American community structure. I really enjoy thinking about the kind of digital worlds that you just mentioned to think about how the cultural community, as it first manifested, um, you know, in 2004, or, you know, I, I'm sure it's been in the process, right, many years before that publication of Chinese St. Louis, but to think about how it's changed and adapted and yet still fits um, and gets the same ideas across, I think is a really fascinating thing to reflect on. Uh, and so I think to wrap up our conversation, I was hoping we could potentially project a little bit towards the future. Um, and I... And I know to think about, say, Chinese Americans in the heartland, as well as Asian American history. So these two wonderful books that you've put out in this past year, um, towards the end, you're offering some reflections on new challenges and opportunities for Asian American communities. And so I thought this was a really fitting way to close out our conversation. Would you share with us what you foresee these challenges and opportunities to entail? Or, in other words, what would you like our listeners to take away from today's conversation? Uh, this new challenges and opportunities, opportunities Asian American communities are facing are uh, multifaceted. Um, on the one hand, they make the world more competitive and challenging for Asian Americans. On the other hand, uh, they also provide some unique opportunities for Asian Americans to survive and succeed in a more complex and uh, conflict post-COVID and the post-globalism in the AI-dominant world, okay? Um, uh, the takeaways of today's conversation, I feel maybe we can see first that the history is uh, a mirror of the present, okay? <laughs> that is a general takeaway, I think. Uh, we can always find our lessons, you know, the history provide useful lessons and the context for the present issues and the situations. Okay? And it can also help Asian Americans to learn their past and educate the general public 
uh, to better understand Asian Americans. Uh, so through the public education, uh, it helps to bring together a better United States of uh, America. Uh, I really appreciate this opportunity. Um, uh, new book, new books network provided uh, to me, and I really enjoyed uh, Donna's wonderful questions. They are comprehensive, challenging, and uh, mind uh, provoking, you know, and I really um, enjoyed them and make me think more. And I hope uh, the audience can um, learn uh, from from Donna's questions. And uh, it is my hope, okay, to promote uh, Asian American studies general, but especially uh, to represent and enlarge the voices of Asian Americans in the heartland. Well, thank you so much for doing all that work, Huping. Seriously, these two texts are going to be incredibly resourceful, incredibly useful for those of us who are trying to get a broader scope of Asian American history, as well as those of us who are maybe more interested um, in doing more of a regional approach, um, thinking about the heartland, thinking about the Midwest and, um, you know, what these specific kind of regional uh, characteristics offer to our interpretations of these histories. So I cannot thank you enough for the amount of work that you've done, for the extensive research you've done on these communities, and for putting this, um, putting these two texts together and allowing me to have this conversation with you about them. So thank you so much, Hu Ping, for joining us today. Yeah, thank you. It's my great honor. <laughs>